Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. After a year's break, I finally went to a tango night. I haven't tingled since the invasion, finding it difficult to allow myself to feel alive when every day brings death and suffering to my homeland. The tango night was a birthday party held in Waterford for the oldest tango dancer in Ireland. Jim McManus had turned 103, the same age as Ireland's independence. Prior to coming to Waterford, I had read a couple of articles about him and found out he was a World War II veteran. I gave Jim a Ukrainian flag as a birthday gift. He genuinely thanked me, saying that he'd displayed the flag in his window. And he made everyone laugh with his birthday speech in which he said, Tingo is very important. It's the most important thing in the world. But as for me, when it came to the dancing, overwhelmed by the stress of war-related events, and after a prolonged period without any practice, I felt awkward and clumsy. I danced with a couple of people, but felt pretty much nothing, as if my senses couldn't unnumb. Then I received an invitation from another dancer and noticed how different his embrace was. My tango teacher in Kiev repeatedly emphasized the need to stand on my own feet, to use the floor as a prop. This dancer's embrace, however, was very tight, as if my partner was inviting me to lean on him, to forget about whatever weighed me down and just dance. It was in this embrace when my senses started to revive and I was even able to feel playful. I later described Jim's birthday tango as part of a Fighting Words writing project for Ukrainian refugees, trying to convey the idea that if a 103-year-old dancer and a World War II veteran is able to find joy on the dance floor, then maybe I could too. The day before St. Patrick's, I received an email from a photographer who was creating images based on our stories. His initial idea was to capture Jim, the birthday tango dancer, and myself dancing together. But after learning that I was significantly taller than Jim, the photographer changed his plan. He wrote, maybe we could cast an older man, not Jim, but someone else, who is the same height or taller than you. I love the way the two bodies support each other in tango, he continued, describing photo samples he had attached to the email. There is something very poetic about it. To me, at least. There is something liberating about it. To me, at least, I echoed him in my mind. The day after St. Patrick's, I went to Bray for my second tango event in Ireland. Someone asked me up to dance. He said he remembered me from the Waterford party. I thought you lived there, the man said. No, I live in Cavan. I made the trip just to attend the birthday party, I told him. I wasn't sure I remembered him at all, but then... Now I remember, I said as we started the dance in an embrace that felt so secure. He told me his name was Michael. In the meantime, the photographer was making plans with a Dublin tango teacher for the photo shoot. He emailed to tell me that I was to come to the city on a Friday night. On my bus ride, I followed a thread of emails and noticed that the tango teacher couldn't make it. 
the photographer wrote to me, reassuring me that it was okay, because, quote, we have Michael coming, a tango-dancing Irishman, end of quote. I hope Michael looks 103-ish, I attempted to be humorous. Well, Michael is in his 40s, but he'll serve as a symbolic representation of Ireland. The photographer promptly changed the concept of the photo shoot. It has to be that Michael, I thought. Somebody who was willing to let me lean on him so that I could enjoy the dance. I came into the community center and the first thing I heard was tango music. I met the photographer, his assistant, and Michael. The right Michael. Did you know it would be me? I asked him. No, I knew nothing about this project. The teacher just asked me if I could volunteer for a tango photo session. Did you know it would be me? He replied. I didn't have any specific information about which Michael was coming, but I knew it would be you. I mean, how many dancers named Michael are there? There are quite a few, he smiled. There may be other Michaels in Ireland, but only some of them are willing to share the burden of a Ukrainian refugee, I thought. For the next couple of hours, the photographer asked us to pose in a tango embrace. We tried a few dance moves, but then stopped and obediently stood still. It was the longest tango embrace I ever shared with anyone. It had only a few variations, according to the photographer's instructions, like me leaning on the partner more or standing face-to-face -face as if before the dance. But for the most part, we were just holding each other. If you knew that you would be representing Ireland, would you still have agreed to do this? I asked Michael while we were taking a short break. Probably not, he laughed. That's an intimidating task. And he immediately stepped back to resume the embrace and to patiently hold my weight in an off-axis tango position. You would, I thought because you are very Irish. Your people and your embrace have proven more than once that you are willing to share the burden of those who just can't stand on their own feet. Since coming to Ireland, I've met Michaels, Patricias, Clodas, Orans, Orlas, Rosemary's, Stevens, Denise's, Allens, Aidens, Fiona's, Aideen's, Bridges, Hughes, Leans, Nologs, Gabriel's, Ian's, and many others. All of these people have helped Ukrainians by sharing our burdens and allowing us to enjoy life at a time when we are struggling to stand on our own feet. This indeed is the longest embrace I've ever had. It started when I arrived here and has been lasting since. My first experience of a serious queue was just after Christmas in 1972. Dada and myself took the boat train from Castlebar to London to visit the extraordinary Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition, which after a nine-month, 1.6 million visitors run, was finally closing on New Year's Eve. As a 12-year-old, 
I didn't know much about Tutankhamun, so I certainly wasn't expecting to have to queue for hours in grey, sleety weather along the tall, forbidding railings of the British Museum. There was much foot-stomping, arm-swinging and hand-wringing to keep ourselves warm. Sensibly, the exhibition catalogue was on sale outside, so after five shivering hours in the queue, Dada and myself were minute experts in Egyptology. King Tut, whose golden face mask had made him the global poster boy of all Egyptian pharaohs, ascended to the throne at the age of nine and reigned for a decade before his untimely death. In 1922, three and a half thousand years after his demise, Tutankhamun's almost intact burial chamber was discovered in Egypt's Valley of the Kings. It contained more than 5,000 artefacts, including a solid gold coffin, that famous face mask, thrones, chalices, archery bows, statues huge and small, oils and food offerings. The discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb is considered as one of the greatest archaeological finds ever recorded, before or since. As Dada and myself slowly defrosted inside the imposingly echoey halls of the British Museum, our queue was funnelled through seven lowly lit chambers containing 50 of the most wonderful treasures from Tutankhamun's tomb. But actually, I don't remember much of the detail. It's the sensation of frozen feet in soggy leather shoes that remains my primary memory of that famous exhibition. Psychologists might ascribe my subsequent aversion to all types of queuing to that formative experience 50 years ago. So why, therefore, have I joined the queue at Wimbledon so enthusiastically in recent years? Mainly because the reward, at the end of up to two full days of queuing, is so worth it. Here's how it works. The All England Tennis Club allocates 500 of their best tickets for each of the centre court and courts one and two on a first-come, first-served basis to anyone who's prepared to queue. These golden tickets, which are sold at face value, are for the ringside seats that surround the show courts and they're available up to and including the quarter-finals matches for both the men's and ladies' tournaments. Because you're within touching distance of the players and officials, you have an umpire's seat perspective of the matches and can truly appreciate the skill, strength and lightning speed of the shots being played. To join the queue, you just show up at Wimbledon Park, which for the duration of the tournament becomes a giant camping site. The rules for queuing are simple and are enforced fairly. The queue is well organised, democratic and is absolutely free. You're not allowed to leave the queue for more than 30 minutes at a time, just for comfort or food breaks. No cooking or barbecues are permitted. There are mobile restrooms available, but no showers. A 24-hour membership at the local gym covers that option if required. When the sun is shining, as it mostly does, the queue is like an all-day impromptu street party. Tennis fans from all over the world pitch their tents side by side, they play footy or bat and ball and share stories and jokes and, most importantly, battery-powered pumps for dodgy inflatable mattresses. There's a curfew from 11pm, so everyone can try to get a decent night's kip. 
At 5.30am, you're woken up by the good-natured stewards who marshal the queue and told to quickly pack up your kit and caboodle, store it in a designated left luggage marquee, whereupon you join an actual moving queue. And after three or so hours, you finally reach the ticket office. Once inside this hallowed temple of world tennis, you've access to all the outside courts, where up-and-coming young players are cutting their teeth, and also to the practice courts where the top-seeded players warm up before their show court performances. As a rule of thumb, if you've set your heart on a centre court ticket for either Magic Monday or a quarter-finals day, then you'll need to spend between 36 and 48 hours queuing. I've been doing it for seven years now, experiencing a golden age when tennis titans like Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams were all at the apogee of their careers. The tickets you get from queuing would easily sell for thousands of pounds on Wimbledon's official debentures seat market. But every year, 1,500 tickets are allocated daily to genuine tennis fans who are prepared to camp out. Because when the television cameras pan the crowd, those courtside seats are always full, while many of the other sold-out seats are empty for large parts of the day, while their owners concentrate instead on the champagne and canapes available in the corporate hospitality suites nearby. The death last year of musician and songwriter Christine McVie of the great blues band Fleetwood Mac and not long after that the passing of singer-songwriter David Crosby and guitarist Jeff Beck brought cherished memories flooding back. I can recall as if it was yesterday listening to Christine Perfect as she was then and her early band Chicken Shack sometime in the mid-60s in front rooms across the length and breadth of Belfast, and hauntingly rendered songs such as I'd Rather Go Blind. Blues and R&B was in the air then. Myself and a group of friends collected albums from America. John Lee Hooker, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, Howling Wolf, Lightning Hopkins among them. Every Wednesday we would check out the Plaza Ballroom at lunchtime, and dance to the finest of pop music recordings, from the Small Faces to the Four Tops, Judy Driscoll to Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. But on Saturdays, religiously each week, we attended one of the many clubs around downtown Belfast, where visiting bands played live in Sammy Houston's Jazz Club, the Maritime, Betty Staff's and the Boom Boom Rooms. In those pre-Troubles days, music was a calling card which knew no sectarian division or boundary. The visiting bands sound like a roll call of legendary names of the 60s. Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, John Mayall's, Bluesbreakers, 
champion Jack Dupree, Gina Washington and his wonderfully named Ram Jam Band, and Fleetwood Mac. One Saturday afternoon, queuing on the stairs before we were admitted to the first floor dance area of Houston's Jazz Club, a delay often caused by the extended rehearsals of older ballroom dancing groups, a very, very tall Mick Flutewood asked me would I carry up his snare drum, and if memory serves me right, a cymbal stand. Undeterred by the fact that this was Mick Fleetwood, I did so and snuck in ahead of the queue just as the doors opened and the afternoon session began. It was one of those days, all right. As we crowded around the tiny bandstand, home to so many local bands such as The Few, The Mad Lads, The Interns, excellent bands they were too, the original Fleetwood Mac set off with the incomparable Peter Green a mere foot or so from our appreciative gaze. If it was a rehearsal for later on and a bigger venue, I cannot recall. But when their set concluded, including the immaculate Albatross, which resounds in my echo chamber from all those years ago, the band repaired to the little counter for Coca-Cola or Pepsi. I was returning from the loo by the stairs to the smaller dance floor, our usual haunt, on the second floor, when I noticed Green sitting slightly on his own and uncharacteristically approached him and sat down. I have absolutely no recollection of what was said, but something must have passed between us, because for many years afterwards I kept in a signed school notebook the kind with graph paper on one side and lined pages on the other for experiments, the underside of a paper cup on which Peter Green had signed his name. It was my one and only autograph of that time in the mid-sixties. Belfast was like that. Fast forward fifty years, and I'm at the point in Dublin with my daughter Alwyn, and there they all are on stage again. This time, alas, no Peter Green, no Danny Kerwin. The music has moderated somewhat, but the enthusiasm is undimmed. So, when Christy McVie took the lead vocals, I couldn't help but think back to those great Belfast days and nights, when music was the only game in town. Magic. a random piece of music playing out in an everyday cafe where I happen to be sitting on an ordinary morning thinking of nothing in particular. Then suddenly it hits home as I recognise the early cadences from Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, the gentle swell of the music as it gradually gains volume and momentum, with all the grace and power of a majestic swan rising slowly from the water before spreading wide its mighty wings and taking flight. And as the music plays on, the memories come flooding back to me. He comes back, and for a moment, the essence of his being fills the room. And I realise, with a sense of disbelief, that he's been gone for almost a decade, 
His light extinguished on a springtime Saturday back in 2014, when he slipped away from us. Tony Rodenko, Dubliner, Royal Ballet Dancer, Artist, Botanist, Life Force and Loyal Friend. I first met Tony on a September evening in 1995, shortly after my now late husband Jerry Sanford and I had become a couple. We just bumped into him on Pembroke Road in Dublin. A close friend of Jerry's for decades at that stage, Tony's reputation had preceded our meeting, and I quickly realised over the next few months that in signing up to be with Jerry, I had also taken on the irrepressible Tony. From that day forward, at the marking of every personal milestone in my life, Tony Rodenko was centre stage. There he was, holding court and telling unrepeatable stories when in the company of those with whom he felt secure. At other times hanging back, sitting quietly in the corner, cigarette dangling from his fingers and just taking it all in. He loved clothes, turning something into a fashion statement simply in the way he carried it off. That's a lovely coat, Tony, I recall saying to him once as I fingered the fabric of the beautiful herringbone overcoat he was wearing. I have lots of lovely coats, he retorted, surprised, slightly offended even, that I should single out just this one. He was a mass of contradictions, this gay man so brimful of humour and intelligence. At times gentle, at others ferocious. If Tony was for you, he was for you. If he wasn't, then woe betide you. Did he hold grudges? You bet he did. Tony was my husband's dearest friend, but gradually he became mine too. And for those of us who loved him, life with Tony Rodenko was simply magical. The magic in Tony's own life, meanwhile, emanated from the place that was the centre of his world, his basement flat in Henrietta Street in Dublin. How to explain how Tony lived? In utter chaos. Piles of clothes strewn across the rooms, a collection of bird feathers perhaps, leaning towers of books, pieces of art, other assorted collections of stuff. All of these competed for space. And somewhere, buried under this sea of his treasures, there might be an armchair, or a table, or even a bed. So who was he then, this extraordinary man who was a genuine one-off? Well, Tony was the real Billy Elliot, with a Dublin twist. Tony was born on East Wall Road in Dublin in 1946, before later moving to Rahini. His Ukrainian father was killed in a motorcycle accident when Tony was very young. St Anne's Park became his boyhood stomping ground and the starting point for his incredible, lifelong botanical knowledge. He knew every plant and tree there and in early 2014, he and Jerry took a jaunt to St Anne's in search of what Tony considered the best bay leaves on the planet. Home they came with a spray apiece like two naughty schoolboys delighted with their plunder. As a youngster, and when his mother thought he was attending Irish dancing classes, Tony inveigled his way instead into the ballet classes at the Desmond Domican Dance School on Parnell Square. Eventually forced to come clean, 
he progressed through the ballet ranks there until, aged just 15, he left to continue his studies in London. He never looked back. Later awarded the Ninette de Valois bursary to join the Royal Ballet School, he progressed to the Royal Ballet Company and toured the world, dancing in all its major productions, even on one occasion alongside Rudolf Nureyev in The Nutcracker. In the heady days of London in the 60s, he was privileged, he said, to count painter David Hockney and writer Christopher Isherwood among his friends. But his love of Dublin never left him, and the 70s find him back on home turf and living as part of an artistic community in his beloved Henrietta Street, his home until his death. And it's his death that's been occupying my mind recently, triggered by the soulful sound of Swan Lake playing in that cafe a few weeks ago, the same music that was playing as we carried Tony into Mount Jerome on that spring afternoon. Tony's final days in the hospice were sad, joyful, desolate and uplifting, as friends and lovers came from near and far, all those whose lives Tony Rodenko had touched down the decades. One memory, one particular moment from those end of days, however, will stay with me always. It's a Sunday morning and Tony, though weak, is in fine form. Where's Jerry, he wants to know. I don't know, I lie. Shortly, however, the door opens and in walks Jerry, followed by the dancer Wayne Sleep. It's been three years since the two old friends have seen each other and Jerry has tracked Wayne down in London to tell him the situation. Now here he is, surprise, standing at the foot of Tony's bed. And Tony is overcome with joy leading to a raucous couple of hours as the two of them reminisce about their royal ballet days. And then comes the moment. Yours was the best grand jeté, Tony. You had the best leap of any of us, says Wayne, jumping to his feet to demonstrate. I look at Tony, expecting some jokey quip. But no, his demeanour is quiet, his expression wistful. I had, hadn't I, he murmurs, almost to himself. Lost in the memory of his life on the ballet stages of the world, and although just days from death, jumping for joy now in his head at the sheer and utter wonder of it. In the island into which I was born in the early 1940s, nobody loomed larger than our Taoiseach, Eamon de Valera. He was widely revered as a national saviour, but also distrusted, even hated by many others. His merits, or lack thereof, were endlessly debated. My mother admired him, my father did not. Most mornings, Dev, as he was known, made his way to his office in town, 
from his home in Cross Avenue, which was situated at the back of his beloved Blackrock College. At Marion Gates, he got out of his chauffeur-driven car. Over six foot tall, he then walked along a path on the seaward side of Strand Road. He was followed by a bodyguard on foot. The car crawled behind, ready to pick him up further down the road so as to complete his journey to work at Marion Street. I cannot have been more than four or five years of age when I took it upon myself to welcome him as he passed our house a few hundred yards short of Sandymount Tower. Hooray, Mr. Dunleary! Hooray, Mr. Dunleary! I used to shout across the road, his name muddled in my childhood mind with that of the nearby township. I believe I did not even elicit a sideways glance as he strode past. Some twenty years were to elapse before he again had occasion to notice me. He was then President of Ireland. I had been President of the Cambridge Union Debating Society in 1964 and discovered that Dev had debated partition there fifteen years earlier. I availed of this connection to beg an audience and was bidden to Aurasanukteroin on a January afternoon. I expected to be overawed in the presence of a great man, but it was not like that at all. It was more like being in the presence of a gracious, charming, old parish priest, simple and unaffected. They did not take the subject as seriously as I would have liked, he complained, recalling his visit to the Cambridge Union in 1949, when a motion favouring the reunification of Ireland was voted down by a huge majority. His complaint seemed a trifle humorless, and I wondered if I'd been wise to remind him of the event. But his kindly old face lit up when I went on to tell him how, in June 1914, Harold Macmillan, the future Prime Minister, then an Oxford undergraduate, had spoken at the Cambridge Union against the Ulster Unionists who were opposing Home Rule. What? Harold Macmillan? He intoned in his rich southern voice, rolling the R in Harold. You should write that up, he said. A few minutes later, the telephone on his desk rang, and some words passed Osquelga. He told me he would have to discontinue our interesting conversation, as a deputation from the Order of Malta had arrived to convey New Year greetings. Every year after that in the 1960s, I attended the Aga Khan Cup, at the horse show, and observed Dev striding boldly across the arena before the jumping, looking neither left nor right. Now almost blind, he still spurned assistance. There was a charisma about the way he bore himself as he walked that was majestic and marked him out as a towering figure. My last sight of Dev was in June 1973, on the day he departed from Orasanukteroin, at the end 
of his 14 years as president. He was now 90. In Grand Canal Street, at the back of Boland's Mill, where he had fought bravely in the 1916 rebellion, he declared that he still expected to see Ireland reunited in his lifetime. The faithful cheered. He voiced, as he had always done, their aspirations and hopes. And even if these were not realised, that was enough to make him their hero. On this morning's programme, we heard The Longest Embrace by Antonia Gunko Carolina, Queuing for King Tut and Wimbledon by John Egan, On Stars by Gerald Daw, Remembering Tony Rudenko by Rosalind D, and Dev by Charles Lysett. The music was Por Una Cabeza by Carlos Gardel, played by Itzhak Perlman with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. The Wimbledon opening music by Keith Mansfield. Say You Love Me by Fleetwood Mac. And Prelude from Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky, performed by the Bolshoi Theatre Orchestra, conducted by Georgi Jemshujin. And there's a book you might be interested in. It's called Inner Light, Stories by Ukrainian Writers in Ireland, mentioned in Antonia's script. It's available to buy at innerlight.ie and is a collaboration between Fighting Words, Ukrainian Action in Ireland and the Irish Red Cross. That's innerlight.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. Next week's words and music will come from the recent Belfast Book Festival, a special miscellany recorded last weekend at the Crescent Arts Centre. And for more about Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, have a look at the website rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to rte.ie slash radio one slash Sunday Miscellany or the RTE player. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.